This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Radical. This is part three of a three-part series of questions, your questions. You get to determine what we talk about on the show. We love doing these. And so if you have any questions that you want to have answered or responded to on future episodes, you can email us, contact at almostheretical.com, or you can go to almostheretical.com and submit your question right on there. You can even record it and send it to us, which is really, really fun. Almost Radical is a podcast that Tim and I started at the beginning of 2018 because we've heard from so many people who feel alone, who feel like they can't question things, they can't doubt, they've been hurt by uh, theology and doctrine and the religious systems that are at play and they don't have any safe places to to go to, to talk about these things. And so that's why we wanted to start the show and that's why we continue to pour our hours into this each week to make this happen because... We want to give you a voice. We want you to know that you are not alone. And so if you want to help support this work, you can do that at almostheretical.com. All right, here's part three of your questions. Uh, okay, here's one from Becky. Okay, probably missed the window for this. Well, actually not. We're getting it in. Uh, but I admire your work in Tim Mackey's. My question is that I heard on another podcast that the biblical story of the Exodus is apparently not reflected, not even close, in any other histories of the region. The biblical scholar on that podcast pointed out that for such a massive event, the loss of the firstborns, the loss of such a huge labor force, you would expect something to be said, even if you would probably expect it to be reframed. That seemed very logical to me. So I've been learning through several podcasts about the Bible and how the Bible works is not as, quote, basic instructions before leaving earth and not as some kind of camcorder footage. But on the other hand, many times throughout the Bible, God's faithfulness in bringing his people out of Egypt is among the most important events, if not the single most important event in the Hebrew people Yahweh relationship. So should we understand that the Exodus did happen as described in the Hebrew Bible, or could it still reflect God's faithfulness if what is recorded is only roughly what happened, a people's collective memory of what happened? Thanks. Hold on, wait for it, wait for it, wait Hit for it. it. Basic instructions before leaving Earth. You remember that? Okay, yeah, so like there was that song, the Christian song, the Christian song, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Sorry, I had to play it. Um, yeah, what's your, uh, what's your response there? Oh, uh, wait, can, uh, do you have any thoughts? Where's, how's your relationship with the Exodus these days, Nate? I've been praying for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, my relationship with the Exodus. Uh, how's your walk with the Exodus? <laughs> well, it's like, do I think it, do I think it happened or do I think it happened how it says it happened? I don't know. I, I resonate with what, um, Tim Mackey said when he was on our show about, you know, it's not camcorder footage. Um, but he, he, his assessment was that it's probably pretty close and it's probably pretty close to what happened, but that the goal isn't that their goal in writing these things down. Wasn't that they got it completely accurate in writing it down. Their goal was something different. So we should look at the something different we should look at what they're actually trying to do by writing that, not at the camcorder footage-ness. Was it exactly how it happened was sort of his take in my, um, assessment. 
I think I'm probably a little bit farther away from uh, literalism there than than he is. So I think I I tend to go more um, in the direction of like Pete Enns, Greg Boyd, Brian Zond, and, and many others who would say that uh, basically that like what we have in the Old Testament, what we have in the Hebrew Bible is people learning about who God is, people like trying to figure that out, writing things that in some cases weren't actually what happened or they thought it was God telling him to go wipe out the Canaanites, but it, it wasn't actually the heart of God to do that. Um, but they attributed it to him like stuff like that going on. And then when we get to Jesus, we have the true revelation of the character and the nature of God. Like that's where those guys would, would land on that. And I think I'm, I'm closer to that probably, but as far as like, did this, did this actually, uh, happen? Um, like historically exactly how it's written down. Like, I don't know if that's, I mean, it might sound like a little bit of a cop out, but like, I don't know if that's an important, I don't, I don't know if it's, a, it, I think it's important for us, like sometimes to, to know the answer to that we want to know from a kind of an American Western perspective. We want to know facts, like did something historically happen, but we might be missing um, the whole reason for why that's even included. I don't know. That's probably completely a cop out, huh? No, I think so. Uh, you know, Becky ends her question uh, with, I think, what is the central question? She says, so should we understand that the Exodus did happen as described in the Hebrew Bible, or could it still reflect God's faithfulness if what is recorded is only roughly what happened, a people's collective memory of what happened? Regardless of what you say, Nate, or what I say, that's the question that everybody's got to answer for themselves. Like, for you, can it still reflect God's faithfulness? You know, the, the biblical text, uh, the story that we have, uh, the, the, the facts in the story claim that 600,000 middle-aged men left Egypt, Israelite men, meaning somewhere between two, three, four million people, supposedly Israelites, left and fled through a miraculously separated sea. There is zero archaeological evidence that this happened. So eventually, uh, for many of us, that scientific fact or, or the lack of evidence or support where there should be some sort of uh, testimony is going to kind of niggle <laughs> at our uh, sense that this is truly history. Did you say, did you, did you say niggle? I said niggle. I've never yep. heard that word before. Is that a word? There you go. Uh, it is a word. Remember the Leaf by Niggle, Tolkien story. Anyway, uh, and eventually it's going to force uh, most of us into asking that, that second part of that question. Can it still reflect God's faithfulness if that's only roughly what happened? Uh, and I think the, the biblical authors are, are trying to, to say that, yes, it does. And so to me, like part of why we're, we did the whole How the Bible Works story is just to show that the Bible's literature. It functions as literature. It functions as brilliant, carefully constructed, uh, ingenious literature. Uh, and that is its meaning. It's, it's literature. So, uh, you know, the, what you talk about, Nate, is like whether it was close to happening. I'd say the meaning, the meaning to uh, the ancient Israelites is close to the meaning for those that... Uh, or in the bib, the Israelites in the biblical story, uh, what it would have meant to them to be miraculously liberated and led through literally a, a parted sea. Uh, 
that the significance in real life to the significance of the story, of the characters in the story, is, is pretty dang close. I don't think the, the story was ever trying to tell us facts uh, of what happened. Um, do, I th- do I think that you need to believe it didn't happen or you need to believe it did happen? No, I don't think it really matters. Again, I think what matters uh, for each person is whether you think that that kind of story can reflect God's faithfulness or can be a testimony to God's faithfulness. And the Exodus is a big one because you're right. It is the, the foundational story for, uh, for the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish people, and, and Christianity. Uh, all of Jesus as the great liberator uh, is based on uh, this story of the Exodus. Um, but there are, there are tons of other stories in the Bible that if your only paradigm is, is this fact or not fact, uh, you're going to get hung up pretty quickly. Uh, the paradigm of treating these texts as literature and trying to figure out what the literary significance or meaning of the text is, to me, makes it uh, so I don't have to worry about uh, some sort of fact claims and I can just enjoy archaeology. Right? I don't have to be scared about what people dig up or don't dig up. Uh, I can just think it's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, we, we've touched on this in the past, but like the reality is, like, <laughs> The reality is, if you believe in Christianity, that, that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and has not come back since, and that for 1,940 of those years, we did not have the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> and that it wasn't until someone dug some stuff up in the desert that we learned a whole lot more about, uh, <laughs> about the Bible, Christianity, and, uh, and the Hebrew Scriptures. That's just the facts, is we are literally, our, our understanding of theology is dependent on what some people dug out of the ground a few generations ago. Uh, so, so incorporate that into, you know, your whole big picture. You can't take some and leave the rest. Correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, there, there is, <laughs> there's, there are very many ways to not go Ken Ham uh, on this one and, uh, and just treating this as a, as a significant epic story in the in the tradition of epic narratives uh, i think is a is a way of doing that you know but like people believe that that's the faithful way to do it you know ignoring we've talked about this on the show before but ignoring what is dug up ignoring science yeah ignoring all of this stuff to say no i am going to believe what this chapter and verse says uh no matter if i look stupid to the world because they feel like well that's what you know that's what Noah did, right? Like everyone thought he was crazy and he, he just kept, that's the, you know, Hebrews 11, that's what these people did. They looked completely crazy to the world, but they, you know, and, and I, I believed that I taught that. Um, and that it's, it's, it's lifted up as like a noble thing to do to ignore facts that you're seeing around you. Or I know people struggle with that word fact, uh, but ignore the, ignore the best knowledge we have based on archaeology or if you want to get into science like based on you know thousands and thousands of studies over the course of many many years um our best our best understanding of the way something happened or the way whatever like ignoring all that to hold to a chapter and verse like is 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 just crazy to me now right and and just don't miss the forest through the trees right like uh the, the mystery of where israel ever came from anthropologically historically uh and, and the exodus and the flood are, are some of the greatest challenges to 
to biblicism and uh, and <laughs> the view of the Bible that it's basically uh, like you say, Becky, camcorder footage. Uh, it's always going to be a challenge, and the more science we have, the the more biblicism will be uh, challenged. But all of that, like <laughs> trying to defend it, trying to question it, like it it runs the potential of having to miss, miss the point. Like what other religion, what other people group, what other culture created a foundational story? For, for how they came into existence, their identity-forming story that was from the bottom, that was slaves who were liberated to freedom rather than a story about why they should be in power. So, I mean, Egypt had its own origin stories about why they should be justified to be running the world, right? Babylon had its own origin stories about why they were endowed by the gods with uh, wisdom and weapons and warfare, right? And, and that's why they should be ruling. Rome had its own pantheon version of why they should be in charge. Most of the world's cultures and religions have, and people groups have conceived of stories to tell themselves where they came from that most all of them are from above. They're told by the, the emperors and the empires, uh, the rulers, what we have in the Exodus story, the fact that this is uh, the central story to uh, the Bible is a central part of why I think the Bible's worth talking about, <laughs> right? If we were reading Pharaoh's story, Pharaoh's side of the Exodus, right? Uh, I wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast on the Bible. I'd say, let's move on. Let's get, let's, let's move beyond uh, this empire, <laughs> right? The, the fact that we're reading the slave side of the story, I think makes this thing beautiful. So to get hung up on like how many there were or whether they actually went through water or not uh, and, and miss the literary significance that we're actually reading uh, slave literature for the first time in history and, uh, and that this is, has been some of the most formative literature in mankind is, uh, is significant and, and I think is beautiful. Just another quick to disappear What will I portray? Okay, um, we had one more, and then one more came in while we were doing this show. Last minute. I don't think that's ever happened before. We had like a live question. Which one should we go to first? I don't know what our options are, so you choose. This is Loki to Zoki? <laughs> no, wait, hold on, let me do that again. Oh, no, no, Loki to Loki on, uh, on Reddit. Sorry, okay. This is more of a statement. It's not really a question. I just thought it was good. It will take some doing to convince people of differing or no faith that they're not going to get hammered by someone quoting scripture. Christians have a lot of repair work and amends making to do this from an ordained Protestant minister. They say, uh, I don't really have anything to add to that except, uh, after this episode and the things we've shared. Um, I, I think you can hear that we agree with that statement. You want to do the last one? Okay. This from Gil, uh, Hey, I'm so sorry. I think I missed the deadline. Frowny face, but she didn't, just in the nick of time. Uh, but on the off chance that I haven't, my question related to Mako Nagasawa's episode on atonement. I've been deeply dissatisfied with PSA, which is preached in my church as the only option for a long time. So I was thrilled to hear Mako's suggestion of the medical atonement theory. I remember Mako saying, Jesus saying, the Lord and I are one from John 10 shows that Jesus was not left by God. How then should we understand Matthew 27... 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you get to answering this sometime, anytime, I'd be thrilled. Thanks so much for all your work on this podcast. It has helped me tremendously to find a broader and more hopeful understanding of Christianity. Best wishes from my little corner of the UK, Gil. If you don't, uh, thanks for the question, Gil. If you don't um, know, PSA is Penal Substitutionary Atonement. And um, for a good explanation of that and explanation of other ways to think about that, go back to Mako Nagasawa's episode and uh, listen to that. We are, we are not big fans of Penal Substitutionary Atonement, are we, Tim? Not so much, no. Okay, what are your thoughts? Eli, Eli, lemma shabakthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, I, I know I've heard lots of different things about that. That was when Jesus descended to, to hell. That was when the Father turned his back. You know, all those the types of things. He turned his face away. Remember that song? Oh, uh, once have paid my ransom. Yeah. <laughs> the, the most anti-orthodox uh, Christian hymn we would ever sing and we sing it every week oh how deep the father's love that's what it okay yep about the father turning his face away from Jesus so what's your boil down what do you think the, what do you, what's the question here what do you think the question is here Gil's question or you mean just exegetically what's what's um, yeah exegetically what are, what are we actually asking here yeah well G- Jesus is quoted in Matthew's gospel as being on the cross saying something It's quoted twice, both in Aramaic and then it's translated for us in the Greek, uh, a quotation of Psalm 22. So the question is, Psalm 22, 1, uh, the question is, uh, what is the meaning of, of this? And does the fact that Matthew quotes Jesus saying this mean that existentially, uh, God abandoned Jesus to the cross, right? Right. Um, or does it not? I think that's one way of summarizing the the question. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, it seems like... Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true But it is available wherever you get your podcasts (laughs) There could be other ways to interpret that Instead of just this like abandonment Um, You know, maybe it's this human moment of Jesus saying like "The, The systems of the world have just worked their worst against me And here I am dying Uh it, it looks like that plan doesn't work. It looks like the the good guy got killed, and so the the vision died. the 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 mission died of changing the world this way. It looks like it didn't work. Um, why have you for Why is this plan? Why have you forsaken me? I thought this was going to work. Um, I don't know. You could you could see it as like as, as something like that. Um, did he did was he abandoned by the father? Was he abandoned by God? I don't know. You said, okay, hold on, hold on. You said he was quoting Psalm 22. Yep. Is there something more here that we're, 
that we're missing? Because I think that would potentially help maybe explain what's going on here if we if we got into what what Psalm 22 is all about. Yeah. I mean, so this fits in with the Exodus question. I th- to be honest, I think, uh, and I, I don't want to sound uh, like pompous, there's always something we're missing. <laughs> like always. Half, you know, some of the times I see them and others are seeing it. Sometimes, you know, I miss them too. But the the premise is we we read texts uh, singularly, unilaterally, on one plane for one sense, and we read the Gospels as essentially historical nonfiction. That's just not what they are, right? And again, that's why we started the How the Bible Works series. Um, the The Exodus story was not written to document what happened thousands of years ago uh, in Egypt. It wasn't. It was written to literarily uh, tell a story with great significance that that story could be repurposed and reused uh, in future generations. The Gospels are not unilateral texts. They are literally, just like we talked about uh, the entire Bible as a, as a mosaic uh, of other pieces, uh, the Gospels are like three-dimensional mosaics. They're constantly... Uh, rearranging old pieces, names, characters, numbers, quotes, words uh, from the Hebrew Bible and even from other popular Jewish texts outside the Hebrew Bible uh, to add layers of meaning onto Jesus's life. And so anytime, anytime there's a quotation of an Old Testament verse or passage in one of the Gospels or in the New Testament, that is a multi-dimensional sentence or, or passage. It has, it's operating on multiple layers of meaning. And so some of this, we miss this again because, uh, you know, we haven't had a chance to get into the book of Psalms and how it functions. Uh, I've just mentioned that basically you have these Psalms, which are, you know, basically poems, songs, prayers, that could be, you know, written for an individual or community to read and recite them in, in a worship service. Uh, on one level, that's what they are and that's what they do. But on another level, they serve as a literary building blocks where either the character being described in the psalm or the one being spoken to in the psalm or the one who is doing the speaking, literally the, the perspective of the writer or the, the reader, singer of the psalm, uh, those characters form basically... Uh, building blocks just as a literary character would, just like Joseph or Moses uh, forms an important piece of the overarching uh, mosaic. So for Jesus, or more importantly, for Matthew to, to put Jesus as the figure of Psalm 22, so that when Jesus is on the cross, what Jesus prays is what the psalmist of Psalm 22 prays is another way of saying Jesus is the one that this snowball was pointing to all along. Now, that only makes sense if we can read the the Gospels as multidimensional and read the Psalms as multidimensional, right? So that a quotation isn't just uh, like a proof texting, but actually this, this layering to say that Jesus was the figure of Psalm 22, right? Just the way that we could say that Jesus was the suffering servant, uh, of Isaiah 52, 53, or Jesus was the son of man of Daniel, uh, or Jesus was the new Moses, right? Uh, 
we're transposing those past stories and characters and their uh, character attributes onto the Jesus story so that we get more meaning out of it. So that's what's happening here. The, this figure, the messianic profile of the book of Psalms, which again, you're just going to have to take my word for it for now, that that is what the book of Psalms is doing, is creating this messianic profile very similar to the book of Isaiah. I've actually got a paper, it might be on our site, you can read it if you're interested, um, uh, on specifically uh, Psalm 22 and Jesus' quotation of it. But the book of Psalms is creating this motif of a character who is the ideal servant of God, the ideal Jew, who uh, surprisingly, like Joseph, goes through suffering that he doesn't deserve and then is exalted beyond all belief. It's creating that profile. But if you're just reading the text flat, you'd you'd never get it. Uh, But by putting those words right at one of the worst, ugliest parts of the entire book of the Psalms, Psalm 22, it's like one of the bleakest ones there is, right? At the, the point of the most utter despair, the sense that God has forsaken God's chosen one, right? Not just like <laughs> God's forsaken me, he doesn't love me, loves you instead. Like the psalmist is his ideal beloved figure, and yet even that beloved one has been forsaken. That emotional uh, feeling is what is uh, is being captured. Hmm. So all that to say, I don't think there's any reason in the world you need to think that either Jesus or or Matthew was construing Jesus as actually being abandoned by God. Definitely Matthew is trying to construe Jesus as experiencing the emotions of having been abandoned by God. But he's coming back to say he's putting Je- those words in Jesus to connect him to to Psalm 22 to connect him to the whole picture of this Messiah figure in Psalm and saying like look this is this is the one. Right. Exactly. It's another, it's another layer. So in Luke, you have that, gotcha. uh, you know, they all do this in their different ways, which is, I think, part of the beauty that we have different attempts at it. But, you know, Luke, you have that story at the end of the gospel. Uh, we have the disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, you know, shows up to them and they don't recognize him. And he says, you know, you fools, didn't you know that everything in the law and the prophets uh, pointed to me? Uh, everything was was pointing to this. This is Matthew doing the same thing, right? He's just doing it without telling us that that's what he's saying. Um, he's doing it uh, through the side door, uh, as it were. I, I think this stuff is fun. Like, uh, you know, in scholarly world, it's called like intertextual reading, uh, the relationships between uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, it's fun, but I think its primary significance is we just have to see that the surface level meaning is not all that there is. And history of the church will show you that if you just go off the surface level meaning, uh, you could get it wrong in some, some pretty egregious ways. And I could still get it wrong too, right? Like my interpretation or how I might want to read, uh, Matthew 27 and, uh, and the story of Jesus on the cross might not be exactly what Matthew had in mind. Uh, but at least if we see that it's complex, uh, that there are multiple angles to come at this thing here, uh, then it'll kind of open our eyes and give us some humility yeah. to uh, to question it. So for those who are frustrated with penal substitution, <laughs> don't let a text like this uh, like keep you frustrated, right? Or or don't don't you dare let someone say that because <laughs> Jesus 
is said to have quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, that therefore the only, the only way you can construe the gospel is that Jesus was paying a blood sacrifice to an angry God. question unless any more come in while we're doing this question uh okay last call to the stratosphere <laughs> let's go we're shutting it down ken ryman said a thought for this episode and by this episode i think he's referring to uh, our tim Mackey episodes when we had tim on the show did we as christians create an idol for the world we claim god's word is jesus but then god's word is the bible so have we made the bible into an idol for all to worship when we, as Christians, attempt to proclaim biblical law to culture. And uh, an added piece here. I have to confess, I did struggle through the podcast where you said, the word of God is Jesus, since what is implied is, the Bible is Jesus, and if one doesn't follow my understanding of the Bible, you are rejecting Jesus. This is what I am almost heretical about, because I no longer believe this. The explanation of the inerrancy myth helped me continue. Yeah, uh... I mean, I think we, we speak out against that a lot on this show, that the, the kind of the, the idea that he said there, that, you know, the Bible is Jesus. If you don't follow my understanding of the Bible, then you're rejecting Jesus. Um, we, we try to show the, the, like you just said, like the bigger complexities of some of these passages and, um, and the complexity of the Bible and what's actually going on here. And I think there was definitely a point when I would have taught that, that like you, you can't reject this version that I'm sharing of what the Bible means um, without rejecting the truth. And if you're rejecting the truth, you're rejecting Jesus. But um, I, 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 yeah, I know I'm no longer saying that. Um, what would you say, Tim? Yeah, I think uh, Ken, like you're spot on. It, the argument is entirely circular, <laughs> and there's no way out of that uh, conundrum without uh, doing s- something intellectually that I said is is borderline sociopathic, convincing yourself to just ignore tensions where there are obvious tensions so does the bible or any single author writer or text within the bible ever claim that the bible is the only uh, access point uh, to divine revelation absolutely not so (laughs) if you have texts that are putting themselves forward uh, even that and say you could question if you'd like uh, as having some form of, you know, divinely inspired uh, version of truth, uh, even if that's the case, and that is where we go to find a version of what Jesus means and who Jesus was, uh, none of those texts themselves <laughs> claim exclusivity over it, right? And just the history of these texts and how we got them and why we did what we did with some of them and why we did what we did with others of them, uh, if you just acknowledge the facts of history, uh, there's no, you know, exclusive, uh, there's no list of exclusive texts that have all the facts uh, and texts that don't. And uh, I think the entire history of the early church, which is that they existed without Bible or Bible texts uh, for a long, long time, um, and believe that their existence, their pre-Bible existence, was <laughs> like the great moment in history, literally the ending of one age and the beginning of a new. Um, 
yeah, it just goes to show that our that our view of the Bible is uh, is completely wonky. I also understand uh, that some of the the biblicism or the wanting to you know make the Bible <laughs> the center is ju- it's an effort to control, and I and some of that I get, and then some of that I just uh, I think is is just crazy, but. Uh, it's an effort to control religion because religion gets crazy <laughs> when people believe that they have God living in them uh, to empower them to do special and miraculous and powerful things. Uh, a lot of us have seen people can do weird crap and sometimes just weird, just like fun, weird, you know, uh, sometimes like weird, traumatic, hurtful, toxic, weird. And so I think uh, kind of naturally the Bible has been a a way to like regulate and referee (laughs) a whole bunch of religious people. And so, you know, you've got the charismatic side of Protestant world that's like, you know, stop regulating us, like be free, act in the spirit, operate in like the power of the spirit. And then you have the like hardcore, you know, cessationists on the other side of the church that are like, no, it's just the Bible, only the Bible. And, you know, honestly, like I, I could take or leave both. So I actually am interested. Uh, I think that the appeal to the Bible as the sole source of, of Christianity is just crazy and it's a fallacy. And also I'm more interested in the Bible most days than I am in in organized religious communities. <laughs> uh, I love people and I love community and I'm happy for people to, uh, to live faith lives and to practice their religion and, uh, and to worship Jesus. But I also don't, I don't want to be a part of a lot of the stuff that's out there. Does that, that kind of make sense? Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I, I think what, what jumped out to me from Ken's tweet too, is the, have we made the Bible into an idol for all to worship? And it just, I feel like I've, I've experienced a lot of that where, like you said, that, that second group where um, it's only the Bible, basically, you know, um, Father, Son, Holy Bible um, camp. And, and that, made, that made me think of uh, the Desiring God tweet from, I don't know, earlier this year, which was read the Bible, memorize the Bible, speak the Bible, submit to the Bible, love the Bible, marry the Bible this year. <laughs> but then what really got me laughing, if, and Happy New I don't know years. if I can even read them on the show, but are the comments underneath? They're just hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so, um, like one person, uh, read the Bible. Okay, good start. Memorize the Bible. If that's your thing, okay. Submit to the Bible. Uh, try Jesus. Love the Bible. Uh, try God and neighbor. Marry the Bible. This got weird. Maybe just chill a bit with this, desiring God. <laughs> oh, and then there's a, there's a lot of other fun ones. But um, yeah, like that whole idea of the Bible becoming this idol that is almost more important than, um, yeah, it's more important than anything else. And, uh, and submitting to this text. And so, and, and generally what that means, where it gets scary, like you said, is an interpretation of the Bible. Um, which is an interpretation, but it's also uh, historical to the time we're living in right now. And everyone's trying to go back and understand the context or whatever, but it's our interpretation at this point in history, submit to that, marry that. uh, And that's where things get super dangerous because at different points in history, people have interpreted things differently. And that's what I talk about all the time, you know, even just when we look at slavery, um, if you want to marry that version of the Bible and say, that's the hill I'm going to die on, you know, a lot of people did. Um, and, but, you know, we adapt and we grow and we change and the church doesn't die. I think even just our language is kind of indicative of 
where uh, modern Protestantism is compared to the history uh, of church. Um, it used to be that we, the church used the term orthodox, orthodox or unorthodox, right? Or orthodox or heretical. And now you rarely hear that term. You hear biblical, right? Are you biblical? Is that biblical? Is this biblical? Are you being biblical or unbiblical? You know? Oh, yeah. And it's the replacement word for orthodox. Uh, the reason that wasn't biblical wasn't the word early on is orthodoxy was established before Bible existed. So you just had a group of people who basically were trying to establish what, what do we all think here? What do we think and not think? What, what's the kind of glue that holds us together? Uh, obviously, there's huge problems with then what you would do, the church did historically with people they, they deemed outside. But at the beginning, it's literally just, you know, what, what are we saying we, we all think and believe? And that conversation and the conclusions from that conversation happened long before we had the Bibles that we have. So as soon as we got the Bible, though, it's a great tool, right? And it just became the, the super tool of policing orthodoxy. And so now, uh, if you claim, if you get to claim that the, the Bible is, is a divinely authoritative text, then you get to claim that if the Bible's on your side, you have divine authorization. Or if the Bible is in disagreement with the person you dis- disagree with, then you uh, you are in by God's order and the other person is out. So it's just created, it's like a new technology that developed in, <laughs> in religion uh, that allowed, you know, basically the printed paper uh, Bible that just, you know, exaggerated probably the already natural impulse uh, to do the inclusive exclusive thing. Hmm. Um, so the fact that we're still, that those are still the defining games, you know, with the desiring gods and gospel coalitions of the world uh, just makes it all feel pretty uh, ass backward for lack of a better word. Um, and, and that's where we said, like, we talk about the thing because it, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's beautiful in parts. It's, it's brilliant and ingenious in parts. It's even if it were ugly, it's been the most formative text in the history of the world. Like, let's talk about those things, right? And uh, and move beyond the flat, uh, is it biblical, is it uh, unbiblical? Um, not saying move beyond, like, trying to understand the thing, right? Like, uh, go for it. That's, I'm still trying to do that uh, all the time. Um, but beyond using it as a wall, right, to separate uh, who's in and who's out, especially when you just look at, you know, Try to guess at the percentage of Christians throughout history who have used the Bible as a wall and have been completely wrong yep. <laughs> about their interpretation, right? And like potentially we're on the wrong side of the wall that they were building. Uh, and it doesn't mean don't believe anything, right. you know? That That's, I think, what some people feel like the other side is. Okay, then nothing's true. There's no truth and everything's just wishy-washy. And what would you say to them? <laughs> I don't uh, No, I mean, like, uh, I don't... Is that is that still a struggle? Like... I feel like um, it, maybe if a few decades ago or at a certain age, you know, when you go off from high school youth group to college, <laughs> it's kind of this like inundation into like uh, postmodern, you know, critique or whatever. I don't know many friends who are actually like wondering if there's real truth or if, you know, if we're just in a matrix or something like uh, I don't think we're really struggling with that. No, I'm saying I'm saying someone who listens to us. 
could potentially say, so are you saying that like, there's, there is nothing to hold on to. There is no, you know, there is no truth or everything is up for debate. And you know what I'm saying? I'm saying more about someone listening, not, I, not looking out at the world, but looking yeah. at us and how we talk. So I would say there is truth and everything is up for debate. <laughs> so I, I would reject the first thing you said and I would affirm, uh, affirm the second one. And I mean, like if you're listening to this show, you know, my attitude has not been the Bible disagrees with itself, so we can't ever know what it says. It doesn't really say anything. Like, I actually, and there, there are people that take that approach, to just point out contradictions or the ways that different authors disagree with one another, and they're all true. Uh, but then the, the main conclusion is basically, like, let's just coexist with not, not really knowing or, or differing beliefs. I think that that part is an important step, but I also want to say, uh, for instance, that the Bible does put forth... Uh, an ethical or various ethical uh, ethoses. Uh, for instance, nonviolence. <laughs> I believe the Bible puts that forth. Uh, for instance, uh, egalitarian affirmation of, <laughs> of women and marginalized people. I believe that the Bible uh, puts that, that idea forth more than it, than it puts something else forth. And so I... I, my approach, my attitude is to say, you know, John Piper, you're wrong. The Bible isn't endorsing uh, patriarchy. The Bible is uh, is actually speaking out against patriarchy. Uh, that's where I go. I'm not happy to just say, well, some parts of the Bible say this, some parts of the Bible say this. So does, we can't really know. So, John, just like, you know, walk walk lightly. And I want to say, John, you're wrong, yeah. right? <laughs> like that idea is wrong. And, uh, and if I can use the Bible to do that, fine, that might, I might still be wrong, right? Like I'm just basing my interpretation on, on arguments and everybody has to, you know, make their own arguments and, and trust who they're going to trust. Uh, I think that the differences or the difference I'm trying to honor is to say, if the interpretation I'm putting forward, if it's hurting you or it's making you uncomfortable or it's not proving helpful for you then that means I need to go back to the drawing board. So A, tell me, yeah. right? Like, let's talk about that. It is up for debate. Um, and, and it's not saying this is the interpretation, you know, one way or the other. Where I'll fight is over somebody saying like, hey, Jesus loves guns and he wants me to have my AR-15 and he wants us to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico and he hates immigrants. Then I'd be like, no, uh, you don't know what you're talking about, yeah. right? So that's where I kind of like, yeah, there's room to just say we don't know. And then there are areas where uh, where I'm going to take a stand. Okay, uh, we did it. We got through all the questions. And uh, if you have if you have other questions, uh, we'd love to put those together into another questions episode. So just email us, contact at almostradical.com or reach out on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. We'll, we'll catch them. So yeah, this, these are super fun because it gets us talking about stuff that you all want to talk about. And that's that's uh, that's pretty interesting. So, Tim, any last words or uh, should we just sign off for now? It's been a long one. Hey, that was fun. Keep the questions coming in. They're fun. Appreciate y'all from afar. Yeah, this has been super fun. We'll catch you all next time. Be sure to marry the Bible this year. <laughs> <laughs> Peace. See ya.